Wonderful. Thank you very, very much, Han, who does everything for us in the church family, <laughs> reads and plays, looks after our tech. That's very, very wonderful. Thank you, Han. Let me pray for us before we start. Father God, thank you uh, for your word to us this morning. We pray that uh, what we look at today would be useful and helpful for us and that we would be warmed by the gospel in this gospel book as we see uh, the Lord Jesus Christ um, um, uh, ruling and reigning over all the things, over all the ages, over all of our lives. And we ask very much that we would be changed and transformed more into your likeness as we seek to become disciples with distinction in a compromised world. We pray these things very much in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, welcome back to uh, Daniel. And this morning, we're going to start our series properly right at the beginning again at the top of chapter one after last week's um, introduction as to where uh, we are in this book. And for those of you who weren't here last week, I uh, may I suggest that you listen to last week's sermon. Um, I think it might really be helpful um, into what is going on in Daniel and where we are. There's a PowerPoint and everything. Uh, you'll have seen the PowerPoint uh, appended to the email uh, this week. I won't be going into any of that today, um, but uh, please do listen to it as I think it might be helpful uh, as, as an introduction to the whole of the series. But as a breathlessly quick reminder, where are we? We are in Babylon, uh, many thousands of miles away from Jerusalem in the year 605 BC, that's 605 years before Jesus was born, with this guy Daniel and his friends. The southern kingdom of Judah has been besieged, if you remember, and the last of the people of God's great kingdom have been carted off to Babylon, the almighty pagan city and its empire, which is taking over the world, all because of God's judgment at Israel's great and increasing sin over about 1,500 years. And so if you remember from last week, as we saw in Jeremiah's letter to the people of God in exile in Babylon at this very time, that the book of Daniel is here to remind us, um, his people then and us now, of two things. And I think these two things might come up on the screen behind me. The first is that God has a loving plan for his people at all times. Even in the very worst of times where Daniel and his friends and God's people find themselves in. They find themselves away from the land of promise, uh, away from the temple, away from God's presence under a pagan king. And that plan, if you remember, uh, was for the people of God to, to fully engage with this city. Seeking the peace and welfare of this city, not to hide away, but to be proactive whilst at the same time living distinctively in it. Following God, living for him, praying to him, seeking the city's welfare on, on, on behalf of Yahweh. And the second thing that Jeremiah reminded us was that in exile, God also has an eternal purpose for his people for all time. A purpose of incredible restoration and return, but, but not just to physical Israel and physical Jerusalem for Daniel and his people in, in sort of 70 years' time. That will happen. There'll be a great return to the land. But to the promised future eternal Israel, the promised eternal Jerusalem with Jesus in his final kingdom. And my prayer is that this book will help all of us as we live as Christians in a not dissimilar environment to Babylon, where God's rule seems to be removed or lost, where Jesus does not seem to be king, where the Nebuchadnezzars of our world seem to be in charge, and where God seems to be dethroned, and where we are seemingly indoctrinated and surrounded by secular anti-God teaching and influence. 
And that is very much our focus this morning as we come into Daniel properly in chapter one. How do we, this is our sort of overarching question this morning, how do we live as Christians in Babylon? How are the people of God and us today meant to live engaged in a pagan stroke secular culture, seeking its peace and welfare, getting engaged, but by totally being distinctive for God in it? in a place where God seems to have been removed. And this is where we hone in on Daniel and his three friends this morning. How do they live this distinctive discipleship living in this evil pagan city? How do they trust in God's plan and in his purpose? Well, in answering that question, we need to first look at what it feels like for God's people to be living in a place like Babylon. We know from last week that Babylon is mighty and pagan, and it looks as if King Nebuchadnezzar is in charge. But what kind of kingdom is it? What is it that Daniel and his friends are up against as they live for God in this pagan city of Babylon? That's our first point this morning. What is it like to be living in Babylon? And this is really helpful for us to unpack in a lot more detail this week before we move on to the rest of the book as we understand the context and the culture in which Daniel and the people of God are living. And to answer this question as to what Babylon is like, we need to go back to to, um, Nebuchadnezzar's invasion strategy. That's what we looked at uh, last week in verses uh, 3 to 7. And if you remember, King Neb's invasion was brilliant and it was swift. It's really clever. He saves his fighting force from long drawn out battles. He he sort of weakens the invaded nation as he removes and trains and re-educates the best, most brilliant men from that nation and leaves the country defenseless and ungovernable. We looked at that last week. And I was talking to one of you this week and you asked whether these same men would then be translated back into their home nation, sort of changed once they had been changed and transformed to be loyal to Babylon. And and you were right. I'd done some digging on this. And that's exactly what was destined for Daniel and his friends to sort of go back home and create a nation, if you like, loyal to Babylon. It's a genius invasion plan. And think about it. Any true empire sort of behaves like that, doesn't it? It's not interested in multiculturalism. Nebuchadnezzar isn't isn't interested about Judah because he wants to have another point of view given to him in his court. Or he wants another philosophy of life from another group of people to make him wise. He doesn't want to sort of build a rainbow nation, if you like, a coalition of lots of different kinds of ideas and religions and thoughts. And that's not what he is interested in at all. He's interested in strict monoculturalism. He wants total dominance of thought for his views to be pressed deeply into the impressionable young men of the new and upcoming generation and to turn them into mini-me's, into mini-Nebuchadnezzars and to send them out into the world 100% uh, Babylonian, making more Babylonians. It's, it's his evangelism strategy, if you like, sending out his apostles into the world to make disciples of all nations in the image of Babylon. Now, that strikes a little chord with us, doesn't it, as we sort of think about the age that we live in, being taught and trained what to say and how to think, being pressured, perhaps, to have to sign up to the latest secular virtue, 
on morality or truth, to say the right words, to defend secular and postmodern liberal thought and truth, that the things that I have to unpick with Toby over the dinner table after school, and he's only six, stuff that is being taught to him as true and right, and are in fact just plainly false and wrong. And this is where Daniel is with his friends. This is where we left him last week, in a very similar world, in the University of Babylon, if you remember, verse 4. These skillful and blemished men are on their three-year degree course in Babylonian studies, learning the true things of Babylon and her gods, even though they're, they're false and real and against Yahweh. Can you see? To graduate, having been indoctrinated and turned into Babylonians. And quite literally turned into Babylonians. And this is where we get to the heart of Babylonian culture and is really helpful for us before we move on. Verse 7. For Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah will not graduate as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They will graduate as Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even their very names will change. From Israelite ones to Babylonian ones. And as we delve deeper, we notice it's not merely their names that have been changed, but with them their very identities. They will go from being Daniel, which means Yahweh is my judge. Hananiah, which means Yahweh is gracious to me. Mishael, this is my personal favorite, who is anything like what God is. And Azariah, Yahweh is my helper to Belteshazzar, which means wife of the god Bel, protect the king, apparently. Shadrach, which means I am so very afraid of the command of Aku, the moon god. Meshach, which means I am nothing who is like Aku, the moon god. Aku sounds like a total charmer, doesn't he? And Abednego, which means servant of the shining one Nebo. Can you see, this is where the the very last remnants of their God, Yahweh, are slowly being stripped away from them. These men are slowly being transformed into Nebuchadnezzar's likeness. Their very natures are to be changed. They are no longer to be Yahweh's people. They are to be Nebuchadnezzar's people, his God's people. They are Babylon's people. And more than that, before we move on, note that they are not just to be totally transformed. But verse 5, they were to be wooed by incredible privilege if they conform. These graduates of Babylon University were to eat at the king's table, in effect, to drink and dine alongside him, eating his own food. They were given literal seats at the table of power. Not only would they be re-educated, but if any of them had anything left in them that might persuade them not to sign up to Babylon ideology, well, we'll buy them instead. With gifts of power and prestige too impossible to reject. And is that not a little like the age that we live in? You do all the right things, signal to all the right virtues, repeat the phrases of our culture, obey modern morality, become like society would want you to become, and all the wealth and the privileges of this liberal nation will be yours. Doors will be open to you. If not, you'll be, you'll be cancelled, a modern-day equivalent of being removed from public life, or you'll be ignored, you'll be bullied, you'll be shamed, you'll be left out of stuff. I'm not pretending that the West is anything like as barbaric as Babylon was. I'm not pretending we live in the same kind of physical kingdom as Babylon. We live in a, in a democracy with laws that protect us, thank God. But it is not all that dissimilar to the way that our culture thinks and would like us to, things to be done. Total uniformity of thought and behavior, moral acceptance. 
Uh, someone said on the radio the other day, arguing why anyone would not want to fully sign up to assisted suicide, he said this, this is 2022 in modern Britain. Why does anyone think any differently to what society knows to be true? There should be no place in our culture, they said, for that kind of thinking. Isn't that a remarkable statement? The world wishes to win us over to Babylon as, as Babylon wishes to win Daniel and God's people over. And like Babylon, our world will do it in the same three ways. Through education, let's change their minds. Through promising riches and opportunity, let's change their hearts. And through our identity, let, let's change their allegiance. Which brings us back to Daniel. For all of this makes what Daniel and his friends do and behave like over the next many weeks as we go through this book utterly and profoundly remarkable. And that is where we come to the first of many true accounts of Daniel and his friends and how they live distinctively for God in this kind of situation, the most suffocatingly kind of situations. And this is our second point this morning. How do God's people live for God in this Babylon? What can we learn from Daniel and his friends as we try to? Well, let's read this part of the account together, starting at verse 8 and reading to verse 16. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you're in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, well, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food to be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Now let's have a look at this decision of Daniel and his friends not to eat meat in a bit more depth. For what does it tell us about Daniel and how does it help us live distinctively in similar situations today? For I know we might have many questions about this. And feel free to ask some of them afterwards as well if you want to. We might even have some criticisms about what Daniel is doing here. First question we may ask, why has Daniel chosen this particular issue to take a stand on? Why did they choose not to eat meat or drink wine from the king's table? Why that issue? It's not forbidden in the law of Moses. And it, and it can't have been, I don't think, that because the meat was sort of from unclean animals, because they sort of refused the wine as well. It might have been because sharing the king's table was considered to be entering into the closest possible relationship with the king in fellowship with him, and they decided that they didn't want to do that. And I think that's probably right. I think that's probably what's going on here. But they do serve the king at the end of this passage very faithfully, so it can't just be that. We might also say, well, isn't their logic a bit skewed? How can they be prepared to cooperate in the changing of their names and their walking around the palace court on show to everyone with their names swearing allegiance to all these foreign gods, but they're not prepared to compromise the eating of meat or the drinking of wine? Where's the logic in that? 
You could go further and say, in fact, how can they be prepared to attend classes in Babylonian studies and to, to graduate top of those classes? Classes that would include lessons on Babylonian astrology, witchcraft, divination, uh, uh, idol worship, and yet decide to become vegetarians here. <laughs> Where's the logic in that? Well, the point, I think, is this. There came a moment where these young men needed to put their stake in the ground for their faith. And it was at that point, this moment, where they choose to risk everything and take a stand publicly for Yahweh. You see, there will come a point, a moment in your life, says the Bible, where the people of God will need to make a stand in Babylon, in the world, for God. And so what is that moment for Daniel and his friends? And for us today, what are the similar situations and moments in which we might need to take a stand for God in Babylon? Well, I actually think we are told in this passage where Daniel and his friends draw the line. It's found in verses 7 and 8, I think. And this is what we read of these two verses directly translated next to each other. Verse 7, And the chief of the eunuchs set upon them names. That's what we read. He set upon them a change of identity. That's the translation. And the very next verse, directly translated, verse 8, says, but Daniel set upon his heart that he would not be defiled. Can you see when does the breaking point for Daniel and his friends come? Where does that point come when he can't bend anymore? Well, it seems to be when his very identity as a man of God, as a man who holds to God as his judge, is being stripped away. At this point, says Daniel, I will go no further. I might listen to your lessons, Daniel might have said, you can imagine. I'll take in the things I even need to pass an exam. I'll, I'll let the lines of the age wash over me, and I can hold firm in that situation, trusting in God, but remove my identity as a man of God? No. It goes no further. You now need to know where my allegiance truly lies. And so here and now, I define myself as a man of God. How? Well, I'm going to make a stand at the nearest possible opportunity. And for Daniel and his friends, it is the refusal to eat at the king's table, the very thing a Babylonian may assume no one could say no to. Well, I'm saying no to it, says Daniel, because my identity cannot be bought. You see, Babylon, the world, will want us to change our identity. It will want us to deny Jesus. It will want to squeeze us into its mold, to say the things, to do the things, to be the things that Babylon say we should. The things that the media, the teachers, scientists, politicians would have us act and behave and believe. Babylon is intolerant of anyone who differs from that view. And so all of us at some point, if we are to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, will need to take our stand. We will need to be distinctive. And so what might these stands look like for us today? And what does engaging with culture in difficult worldly areas whilst remaining distinctive look like, as Jeremiah's letter is encouraging us to do? Well, it might be very different for each of us, but let's look at a few examples. I remember talking many years ago to a Christian friend of mine who works in government. And she told me that she had to make the toughest calls on voting for laws that you can argue don't stack up against the Bible at all. 
And she told me of the internal wrestling and praying over each of those laws, that, that she had to tow the party line over, that she had to obey the, the party whip of and, and, and vote for them. And doing so to the criticism of many Christians who criticized her logic and her faith, as we might do with Daniel and his friends. But she did so, she told me, knowing that in the future there is going to be a vote on a very particular issue that she will have to vote no to, even though she will lose her job over it. I'm holding my fire, she says, for when I can use my position most effectively. When I can take the stand that I will have to take before God who rules, and it will cost me everything. The pressure to conform and vote on that bill will be enormous, but at that point I have to say no. She is someone who is engaging with the culture around her, not frightened of it, with all the gifts and wisdom that God has given her, the top of her profession, like Daniel, ready to take a stand, ready for that moment where she says no. Take the student I knew a couple of years ago at a, theo a theological institution in the UK. He was told to write a, write a paper defending the view that it was becoming increasingly clear that the New Testament was a lot of hearsay stories collected by a Jewish subgroup wanting to promote a new religion about a crucified risen saviour. And he couldn't do it. He instead wrote a paper defending the truth that the Gospels were reliable eyewitness accounts of the real divine man, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he failed the paper and had to resit the class. That's where this student chose to draw the line. His pressure to conform, but he, he said no. But for those of us who are not in those kind of environments, what does this look like in the normal everyday experiences? In the workplace, do you choose to go home at five on the nose despite the incredible pressure not to? You willingly give a lot to work, but to defend your time with your family, to be able to go to church in the evenings, whatever it might be, that's where you draw the line. It's perfectly okay to stay late at work, just as it was perfectly okay for Daniel and his friends to eat meat and drink wine. But that's where you draw the line, your pressure to conform. But here you say no, that, that's where you make your stand, in what might be a particularly unhealthy working environment around you. In the family environment, do you choose to make a stand and not send your kids to football on a Sunday? Despite the gifts they display, it's perfectly okay to do sport on a Sunday. But is that where you draw the line? Is that the sacrifice you make so that you and your family are building godly relationships in the church environment? You're consistently listening to the Bible with God's family week on week. In the social sphere, knowing the environment of your friendship group, do you choose not to drink while out with them? It's perfectly okay to drink alcohol and to enjoy it appropriately. But that environment is where you take your stand, your pressure to conform, especially if you're a student, perhaps, in an unhealthy environment, and, and there you say no. Not arrogantly and piously, but like Daniel and his friends, carefully, wisely, graciously, warmly and winsomely. No, no, I, I won't do this. There may come a moment in our Babylonian-like existences where we will need to make a stand in small ways every day, perhaps, and for some of us in time, in big public life-changing ways. The, the, the stand that defines you for the whole of your life. Now, please hear me when I say this following sentence. And don't come up to me and say that I haven't said this. <laughs> I am not telling you where your stand should be in your experiences in your lives. Some of you, me included, will have to work past five. I, I, I'm not saying that that's something that we need to be doing. You know that. I know that. Please hear me when I say that. We all know of brilliant, godly sportsmen and women who have had to trade on Sunday for years 
and they love the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we know that. My point is this. At some point, at some moment, a stance will need to be made, increasingly so, I think, in our culture. And like Daniel and his friends, with real wisdom, I hope and pray that we all know where that line is. Neither am I talking about flagrant sin. Oh, I'll make a stand in the future as to whether to stop watching pornography. <laughs> no, no, no. You've you just got you to stop that and, and, and repent. That, that's not what Daniel is talking about either. But in our Christian lives, where we live in the world, like the exiles in Babylon, commanded by God in Jeremiah to fully embrace culture and yet be distinctive in it, where does that mark of distinction lie? And that point in your own spheres where you fear that your next step is close to a removal of your identity as a Christian. Here, I refuse to defile myself. I will set upon my heart not to do this. And guys, this is, this is really difficult. I, picked, I may have picked really poor illustrations. Forgive me if I've done that. A lot of these are wisdom calls. As you wrestle through work life and parenting life and family life and social life, this needs a lot of prayer. This is why we're placed in churches, to be able to talk about these things and to ask these things and to question these things, um, each other about them as we go through life together. Daniel was his, with, with his three friends. You can imagine them meeting up to pray about it. and talk, Is this where we do this? Is this where we draw the line? You can imagine them going to class. Should we be going to this class? Yeah, I, I think so. It's hard. This is why we have small groups. I'm really hoping and praying that we'll be able to have time to personally share and really think through some of these issues as we work them out together in our family over the next few weeks. But Daniel and his friends seem to avoid both extremes, don't they? They don't compromise, yet they don't withdraw into their Jewish cultural cliques and stay there. And some of us will be sort of temperamentally skewed to both of those ends. Some of us may be predisposed to give in quite quickly, compromise too early. And some of us may, be, may just want to withdraw from the world, not get involved in the world at all, going back into our Christian subcultures and just be very safe and not bother about talking to people. But Daniel and his friends would not withdraw. They remained and worked hard in the public sphere. They engaged fully with culture as Jeremiah tells them to, seeking the peace and prosperity of their city, quite, quite genuinely and literally for Daniel. Whilst at the same time they remain loudly distinctive, carefully, thoughtfully, publicly, boldly, courteously, gently, respectfully, making a big, strong public stand for Yahweh. Now let's draw this to a close. For where does this passage leave us? Well, it leaves us with these four friends being vindicated, doesn't it, miraculously, which leaves us, if we're not careful, in a very dangerous position when we come to Daniel 1. For what happens when Daniel and his friends make this stand? Well, after the experiment is run, as to see whether they're sort of they're not eating the king's meat will make them look terrible, will make it hard for the eunuch who would obviously lose his life. Verse 15, after the 10 days are over, these four friends, young men were, were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the others, and so the eunuch gives in, gives them vegetables. They are miraculously vindicated. And this is where we come back to our two points we have hanging over the whole book, which we introduced last week, and this is really important. God's loving plan for his people in the worst of times, God's eternal purpose for his people for all time. For it is in these last few verses where we see both of those things come together. And that is very important that we do. For what does Daniel and his friends' miraculous strengthening mean? 
Does this mean that if we make a stand for the gospel for God in a public way, that the miraculous might happen, or that we'll be immediately better off in the here and now? Not at all. And this is where applying the book of Daniel is done so carefully. We have to be really careful here. This book is not telling us that if we make a stand, or indeed if we become vegetarians, as I've actually heard a talk on this once, that we will be stronger and that God will reward us handsomely for the decisions that we've made in the here and now. No, in the cases I've given you about my friend in politics, the theology student, that they will all suffer. They have suffered for making stands for Jesus. Neither does it mean that God can't reward us miraculously and incredibly when we make standards for the gospel. I've known that to happen too. People have stood up in their workplaces, done what is right, and opportunities have opened up for them incredibly so. The point here is a much wider one. The wider principle of God's loving plan for his people in exile here at the time of writing for us today and his greater purpose for us for eternity two things that can only be true because of one massive reason. And that brings us to our last point. We can only live distinctively for God in Babylon, trusting in God's plan and purpose for us because God reigns in Babylon. And that is the point of the book of Daniel. And that brings us on to our last question this morning. For how can this incredible thing happen to Daniel and his friends? That's what we're asking. How can it be that they can possibly stand for God in this kind of city when it seems impossible to do so? Where everything is lost, where their very identities are on the line by a culture that is suffocating them, where Nebuchadnezzar seems so powerful, how can Jeremiah even write a letter to the exiles telling them to live well in this kind of city and remain distinctive to God in it, trusting in God's plan and his purpose, They can because God reigns in Babylon. We can make these impossible stands in our Babylon experiences because God reigns in Babylon. God reigns in Scotland. Imagine we were teaching this to kids as is happening downstairs this morning, which is really helpful. What would we ask? Who makes Daniel and his friends strong? Is it King Nebuchadnezzar and his amazing food or is it God? The answer is God. Okay, so who is the more powerful person in Babylon? Who seems to be really king over Babylon? Is it Nebuchadnezzar or is it God? God, they say. And so who do we trust then in the very worst of times? Who do we think has a better plan for us in our life now? We'd ask our kids, Nebuchadnezzar or God, and they would say God. Can you see? I am the God of Babylon, this passage screams. I am king, trust me. I am working out my loving plan for my people at the worst of times. Trust me, not Nebuchadnezzar and his food. Trust me to look after you in the here and now. Not in the things that are promised to you, the things that the world wants you to have. Trust me, trust in my plan for you, not in the world's plan for you. Trust in my eternal purpose for you. Trust in me when you have to make a public stand for me. For I rule and Babylon, says God, is mine. Remember we said last week that this book is not so much about Daniel as it is about the God of Daniel. Daniel is the representative of God's people before God. And so what happens to Daniel is what is promised to all of God's people eternally. He is a picture of what happens to us spiritually. We are not Daniel in that sense. 
Daniel is God's special man raised up for a significant purpose to show God's people then and now that God rules at all times in all nations and that his loving plan and purpose is still alive when all seems lost. And that is exactly where we end chapter 1. Read with me very quickly the last few verses as we close from verse 17. As for these four years, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. Not, not, not Babylon University. God gave them all skill. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them. And among all of them was none found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. As for these four youths, God gave them everything. More than anyone else. And, and they were the greatest in the kingdom. God gave, he is in charge, he rules. God is reigning in Babylon, says Daniel 1. He is miraculously using this kingdom to his own desires and for his own purposes. To get his people into his place, miraculously protecting them to show his people that God rules and is alive in Babylon, that, that he rules and is alive in 21st century Scotland, that he is reigning in the whole of the earth today and that he has a loving and an eternal plan and purpose worked out for his people and nothing is going to stop that. I am the God who will protect his people in the worst of times, says the God of Daniel 1. Exampled by this miraculous strengthening of these four obedient men of God. And I am the one who will miraculously fully strengthen all my people as they make stands for me in pagan secular Babylon, in secular Scotland, in the anti-God world, over every age, in big and small ways. Living for me and speaking of me, being distinctive for me, trusting in me that when they do, my loving plan is going to be worked out for them. As I usher in my new kingdom for the future, the kingdom of my King Jesus, as we'll read in a few weeks' time. The kingdom that will last for an eternity, the kingdom which I will save my people to and strengthen my people in, the kingdom in which there will be no crying or fear or pain, the kingdom where my people will finally be vindicated before all the kings of the earth, where my people will be more than what they are now. And I promise you that that will happen, says the God of Daniel to us today, for I rule in Babylon. Let me pray for us as we close. Heavenly Father, God, thank you so very much for the book of Daniel. Thank you uh, that it is so very helpful for us as we seek to live distinctive lives in, in really difficult and muddy and grey and compromised areas in the world. Heavenly Father, I pray very much that you would give us real wisdom, all of us wisdom, especially those here in this room and watching online who are in secular environments, who have to come up against Babylon every single moment of every single day. Father God, I very much pray that you would bless them and protect them, bless all of us and help all of us to live distinctive lives, making stands for you where we really need to, not letting our identity as, as people of Christ to be stripped away. But Heavenly Father, help us also to remember the, the, the greater principle of this book, that you reign in the world, that you reign over us, that you reign in our workplaces, you reign in our home life, you reign in our private lives, you reign and rule in our social lives, you reign every time that we get together to gather, you rule over this church, you rule over Scotland. Father God, help us to bow the knee, help us to follow you, help us to trust in you, 
and in the very, very worst of times, help us to depend and rely on you and ask for your help and seek your help as we seek to live for you in Babylon. We pray these things in the name of King Jesus. Amen.